The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Today we continue in our series through the book of Acts. If you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, our text for this morning is is, uh, Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And just so that we get a bit more of the context... I will begin reading from verse 6. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then now today's text. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, our text might seem unusual for the fourth Sunday of Advent, but it's unbelievably fitting. Uh, the first Advent began when, when Christ was born, when he, when he took on flesh, uh, humbled himself, became a man, born in a manger, s- taught, lived a life, suffered, died for us, and then, and then rose from the dead. So it's all the, the first coming, all the advent. And now, right at the end of the first advent, we have this text. When does the first advent end? It ends with Christ's ascension. So that's what we're going to focus on. This, uh, this morning, Christ's ascension. And one writer on the Gospel Coalition blog called the Doctrine of the Ascension, he, he said this of the doctrine. He said, it may be the most important doctrine that we never think about. <laughs> so my aim this morning is that we think about it, that we think about Christ's ascension. And uh, I want to do so for the advancement and joy of your faith this fourth Sunday of Advent. Let's pray. So, Father in heaven, I pray that by the truth of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would grant that we would see your glory in the face of Christ, that our faith and joy would be advanced, our hope in you, our love for you, our comfort and joy would be Increased and enhanced by this look into the ascension of Christ. So come meet with us for the glory of your name, for our good, and for joy to the world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine being among the disciples at this time. The crucified Jesus has risen from the dead and 
and he met with them. He met with over 500 people over the course of 40 days, and they had seen him alive, physically alive, with a body. Uh, Thomas touched my hand. They had seen him uh, cooking fish and eating fish at the shore of, of the lake, and uh, they had heard him teaching. Jesus was alive. And understandably, that gave rise to the disciples thinking that, okay, now Jesus is going to set up his kingdom and set up his eternal throne and rule the world with justice and, and peace. And yet, basically, Jesus said to him, and we looked, this, looked at this in previous weeks, my messianic kingdom is going to be different from what you think. But rather, here's what's next. Wait here for the promised Holy Spirit. This is the text last week. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, all Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. That's what's next. And then something else is next, and it's our text. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Huh. And the the disciples have got to be thinking, so, what? (laughs) That's, Jesus, where, you're leaving? What about your kingdom? What about your reign? And, and he, yes, he leaves. Now, the Apostles' Creed, you know, it was written in something like the 300s. It summarizes the, 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 the doctrine of the ascension. And we just read it. We just said it together. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty from thence, from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. There's the doctrine of the ascension in a nutshell. And now what I want to do is gather, uh, speak to you five observations about the ascension for the advancement and joy of your faith. Five observations about the ascension. Uh, So here's my outline. If you're taking notes, I'll I'll speak it. Five points. I'll say them quickly, and I'll say them probably more thoroughly as I go through. Number one, the ascension is about the exaltation of Christ. Number two, Christ's return to the Father. Number three, the ascension is this precursor to the gift of the Holy Spirit. Number four, the ascension establishes Christ as our great high priest. And number five, The promise of the ascension is the second coming, the return of Christ. So that's where we're going. Let me take them one at a time. By the way, I told Chuck I had over 50 pages collected for this sermon, and I promised him I would not do it all. But I'm going to turn to a lot of verses. I'm just warning you just to pull together this glimpse of the ascension So bear with me. Turn to Daniel chapter 7. Point number one. Observation number one. The ascension is the exaltation of Jesus as Lord and Christ. Long after David, the great king of Israel, the man after God's own heart died, the Old Testament prophets looked forward to the day when God would send an even greater king. The Messiah, it's how we, the word in Hebrew, the, the, the Greek word is the Christ, would come and would not only rule over Israel, but would rule over all the world with righteousness and peace and justice. 
Now, Daniel the prophet foresaw the coming of the Messiah. And in, in the vision that he saw, he describes the extent and the duration of the coming Messiah, this king who is to come. And listen to it. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, sound familiar? There came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, namely God, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. There's the prophecy, or one of the prophecies. Now turn to Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2, we have the first sermon of Pentecost. This is the first sermon uh, of the church. Peter speaks in the power of the Holy Spirit to bear witness to Christ. It results in more than 3,000 people believing in Christ and being saved. I just want to key in on part of it. We're getting to this as we, as we move into January in our series. But let me just jump there right now. Uh, verse 32, Acts chapter 2. Peter says in his sermon, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. And then to press the point even further, David, or excuse me, Peter references David, the great king who died, who in his own psalm points to a, the greater king who is yet to come. And David himself calls him my Lord. So it's not David. It's the Christ. Verse 34 of Acts 2. For David himself says, The Lord, God the Father, said to my Lord, the Christ, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And then in verse 36, Peter presses the point home. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. What does that image communicate that Jesus, when he ascended, was seated at the right hand of God the Father? Let me explain, but let me start with a picture. A picture of God seated on his throne. I get it from Isaiah 6. I'm not going to turn there. But the picture of God the Father seated on his throne as sovereign king over all. He has the right and the power to rule over everything because he created everything and everything belongs to him. He's secure on his throne. God the Father is not seen as flitting around trying to protect his throne, you know, real anxious. He sits he rules. He reigns. He does as he pleases. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? He sits. Now, with that picture of God the Father, add to that the imagery of Christ ascending and being enthroned at the right hand of the throne of God the Father. 
Paul writes of this, Ephesians 1. God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the age to come. There's the picture. God the Father sits. God the Son, the only Son, sits next to the Father on his throne. This is why Jesus, at the very end of Matthew, can say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I sit on the throne at the right hand of God the Father. What does this mean? It means that under God himself, Jesus Christ is the sovereign king. God appointed Lord of the universe. He is the Christ, the promised Messiah. And while it is true that some beings in heaven and on earth will defy his reign and rebel and resist, there is a day coming. Philippians 2 tells us when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus sits at the right hand of God the Father as Lord of all. Now, in addition to that massive, glorious reality that Jesus is King and Lord of all, God has made this Jesus both Lord and Christ, whom was crucified. Add to that this amazing New Testament teaching. The New Testament teaches that we who believe are so united with Christ that when he sits on his throne, we sit on his throne. It's like, well, that's crazy. (laughs) Where's that? We're making this up. No, that's what the Bible says. We're so spiritually united with Christ that when he sat down, we sat down. Ephesians 2, 6. And God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. So how can this be? Well, at the fall of Adam... The whole human race fell into sin, and as a result, the the dominion that God had given Adam, had given humanity, Adam and Eve, over all creation, also was ruined by sin. And by seating the resurrected Christ, the second Adam, on his throne, at his right hand, God redeemed the dominion he had originally granted to human beings before they fell. And so be amazed with the Apostle Paul that because of our union with Christ, because we are in him, we are now spiritually treated as in him and seated at the throne of God the Father. See, it is our guarantee that as Christ was raised and 
seated next to God the Father in glory, we too shall be raised with Christ and seated. And in a spiritual, eternal sense, we can say, that's happened. That is, even as we wait for it to be fully accomplished. <sighs> Revelation 5.10 references this. You know Revelation 5.9 about the extent of the death of Christ. With his blood, he purchased people for God from every tongue and tribe and people and language. And in the next verse, it says, and they, the people whom God purchased with the blood of Christ, shall reign on the earth. It ought to blow your mind that this is an aspect of our union with Christ, not only to be forgiven for all our sins in Christ, to be reconciled to God by Christ, but to be ushered into glory to reign with Christ forever. Paul says, why? Why does God do this so lavishly to us? Paul says, Ephesians 2, 7. Well, he does it so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Observation number two. The ascension is the return of Jesus to his heavenly Father. Several times Jesus spoke of his ascension in, terms of, in terms of returning to God. For instance, Jesus said to his disciples on the night he was betrayed, uh, this is John 16, 5, but now I am going to him who sent me. And likewise, after Christ's death and resurrection, on Easter Sunday, Jesus revealed himself to Mary alive, and he spoke this of his ascension in terms of going to be with the Father. Uh, John 20, 17, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and to your God. Well, what are the implications of this? Remember, back in the beginning, God created Adam and Eve, and they lived in perfect fellowship with God the Father. And Adam and Eve sinned and brought separation between God the Father and all humanity. And God banished them from living in the garden, living in the glory of his presence. Later, in uh, Exodus 33, God explains to Moses, no one can look upon me and live. His glory and holiness and righteousness would lead to our utter obliteration. And yet, here at the Ascension, you see Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus, fully God and fully man because of the Incarnation, joining with God the Father. 
This is the first time since the beginning when God was with Adam and Eve and they walked together in the garden. This is the first time that a human being in flesh was united to God at the ascension. Because Christ ascended, the God-man, we have confidence that we will be with God the Father. Human beings that we are, forgiven by the grace of Christ. I love 1 Peter 3.18. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Why? To bring you to God. As he is united with God, so also we shall be by his grace. Third observation of the ascension. The ascension is a precursor for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Back in Acts 1, we saw that after Christ's resurrection and before his, his ascension, he ordered the disciples not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. And he said, the promise of the Holy Spirit is not going to come until I leave. It's the plan of God. Before Jesus was crucified, he said to the disciples, this is John 16, 6, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come, the Holy Spirit. But if I go, I will send him to you. That's exactly what happens in Acts. Jesus ascends to the Father. The Holy Spirit is poured out in Acts chapter 2. And the church is empowered by the Holy Spirit uh, from then on until glory. It's a big deal. So what is the significance of this? Because Jesus ascended, we who believe from then to now to all believers of all time will receive the gift, have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's secured by the promises of the gospel. I, I, I love Jesus' pointing to the new covenant at his, at his death, at the, at the Lord's Supper. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Take it. Drink it. And by that, I infer my death, Jesus says, secures that new covenant and all that it means of salvation and the gift of the Holy Spirit for all who will take it, for all who believe. Take it. Drink. And I I love the descriptions of the new covenant in the Old Testament. Like Jesus, so give us a glimpse of this new covenant promise of the Holy Spirit. I'm just going to go to one. There's, there's another one coming in Acts 2. I'm not going to take it from whoever's preaching that sermon. I'm going to go to Ezekiel 36. Here's the new covenant promise that Jesus purchased and poured out for us after his ascension. Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. 
and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my ways and to be careful to obey my rules. Praise God that at the ascension, Christ, as he promised, sent the Holy Spirit upon all who believe, such that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we believe. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we see Jesus as he really is, the glory of God. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we we need a new heart. We need new impulses within us. By the power of the Holy Spirit, God changes us from the inside out to become more and more and more and more like Jesus until the day we see Jesus' face. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are fully sanctified and glorified and made to be like Christ. That's the third observation. Fourth. Turn to Acts 7. The fourth observation is this. The ascension establishes Christ as our great high priest. Acts chapter 7. As you know, probably... Acts chapter 7 records the account of the stoning of Stephen. Several religious sects had banded together to slander Stephen, give false witness, and drag him before the authorities, charging him with blasphemy against God. It was a false charge. And Stephen responded by preaching one of the most indicting sermons, of, uh, probably the most indicting sermon of the church age, at least, uh, I was going to say of the New Testament, in indicting his kinsmen, his Jewish kinsmen, for rejecting the Christ historically century after century after century. And for that, the crowd was stirred up into a mob and began stoning Stephen. Now here's, here's the glimpse of Christ in heaven at God's right hand. Acts seven fifty four. And now when the crowd heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at Stephen, at him, But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What what did he see? What is this? What did he see? Jesus got up from the throne and was standing. Now, he wasn't sitting. He was standing. Now, Jesus stands to act, to intercede, to serve as an advocate for his people in the presence of God. So Stephen, while he's being stoned, is granted this vision of seeing that Jesus is for me. He's advocating for me. He's working for my 
eternal preservation for my salvation. He's, he's pushing off the accusations, the false accusations of condemnation. And he's, he, my hope is in his justice and in his preservation and his power. He's securing glory for me. I'm going to be okay. As the stones come in, that's the glimpse that preserves Stephen in faith as he's being martyred. Of this rule, Paul writes in the great eight. You know what I'm talking about. Romans 8. 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ, the one who died... More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God the Father, who indeed is interceding for us. There's going to be no charge against us who are in Christ. Jesus is not only died, but he's interceding for us. Paul concludes that since Christ died and ascended and is now interceding, nothing in the universe can separate us from his love. Neither tribulation or distress, nor persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our interceding Lord. What is the significance? It's obvious. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, when any of us are in distress or facing spiritual or psychological or physical threat or trauma, Jesus stands ready. He stands ready at God's right hand as our great high priest and our advocate. And he intercedes for us. So go to him with your troubles. No no matter our distress, uh, no matter our distresses or our plight, COVID-19 or cancer, alienation or division, bitterness or betrayal, injustice, failing or fainting, terrors or anxieties in the night or the depths of, of despair, and depression. Jesus is standing, interceding for us. In fact, go to him as a sinner, even when you sin. First John wonderfully says, First John 2, 1, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus the righteous. So go to him, and I have to read Hebrews 4, 14. This great invitation to us. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then 
with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and help in our time of need. What's Jesus doing right now? He is standing before the throne of God as our high priest, as our advocate, interceding for us, for our eternal good. Fifth observation. The promise of the ascension is the return of the king. You know, I I cannot help but think that the disciples have emotional whiplash. They had lived with Jesus for three years, and their hopes were up. The Lord taught them. He was their teacher, and he was their friend. They loved him, and, and he showed them the extent of his love for them. They believed in him, trusted him. And then they entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and everybody in Jerusalem loved him. And then Thursday night, Judas betrays him. Friday, Good Friday, Seems like everybody in Jerusalem is yelling, crucify him. And by the middle of the day, he's dead. Emotional roller coaster. So now the disciples, Friday night, Saturday, Sunday morning, Jesus is alive. He, he reveals himself to the women who come, and then he reveals himself to the 12 and to the 500. And, and then now he meets with them, and now he says, I'm going. <laughs> See you later. Up and down and up and down. Our text says in Acts 11, 1, that as the disciples looked on, Jesus rose from the earth and the clouds of glory enveloped him and took him out of their sight. And that's when the two men, angels, in white robes said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. There's the promise of the ascension. Jesus will return. Previously, Jesus had told them, told the disciples that he must go away. John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. He had told them that he was going to go away. And he's trying to come to let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it, were, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to myself that you may be also where I am coming again. John 14, 8. He says it with a metaphor. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So the Bible says that when Christ returns, everyone will see him, the living and the dead, The sun and the moon and the stars will be darkened. It'll be like the darkening of a stage so that when the lights come on, everybody sees. And Jesus will split the sky like lightning from the east to the west. And everyone will see his coming. Matthew 24, 30. 
Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So unbelievers are going to mourn, verse 31. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect. Jesus will gather his people to himself. And so at his coming, at his second advent, those who despise him, reject him, rebel, resist his love, his grace in the gospel, it will be a time of utter terror and mourning and eternal punishment. But for us who treasure him and who love him and who long for his second appearing, it will be a time of great joy because Christ who initiated his kingdom when he came and, and was enthroned in heaven when he ascended, will come back for the full consummation of his kingdom. And once and for all, he will gather all his people to himself and establish the new heavens and the new earth. And God will, we will live with God and God will live with us and we will be his people. And he will be our God and he will put an end to Satan and all his enemies, to sin and, 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 and put to, to death sin forever and, and evil, all the wrongs will be righted. For those who have sinned, who are in Christ, we will find God's mercy and forgiveness and an eternal welcome for those who do not know Christ and who have rejected him. They will find his eternal justice and separation from him forever. And the last enemy, death, he'll put to death. Of the new heavens and the new earth, Revelation 21.3 describes it this way. And he, Jesus, will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And so we shall be with the Lord forever in his presence where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore at his right hand. It's the promise of the ascension, our eternal destiny with God and with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. So now, we live in this time between the comings. We live in, in between the comings. Christ's first advent has happened and the gospel is and has been preached to us and we believe and we're saved. And yet, at the same time, we await the second advent when he will come and, and consummate the kingdom. So we celebrate the first advent and remember and believe and rest in Christ and all that God promises to be in the salvation that's ours in Christ. At the same time, we long for his appearing. So I thought 
I thought we would end with a song that works both ways. You know this song. This is, this is maybe the only Christian Christmas carol hymn that does not reference the details of the, of the birth of Christ, but rather orbits around the reign of Christ, his rule and his reign. And how he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Joy to the world. Isaac Watts wrote it based on Psalm 98. And I want us to close by singing it together as we live with one eye resting on the reality of the first advent and another eye hoping and longing for the return of Christ and the consummation of the kingdom. So let's, let's sing. I want to invite Chuck to come as I pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word and this glimpse of the beauty and the reality and the glory of Christ's ascension. We praise you. And how can we thank you enough for the riches and fullness of your grace to us in Christ Jesus that we've seen in just these few texts. So come as we sing for the advancement and joy of our faith. Make it real in our hearts by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples through Jesus Christ.